Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you would like to be on the show, you could always give me a call on the listener hotline, which has been fairly quiet lately, that number 303 832-0217. I also have uh, all kinds of contact links in the description of this show. Uh, and you can get me there, too. Uh, anyway, today on the show, I'm going to be talking to an interesting um, guest. And it's going to be an interesting discussion. And and she's a... Um, because I'm talking to a doctor of transportation. So in just a bit, I'll be speaking with Dr. Kelsey Ralph, who is an associate professor of transportation planning and policy at Rutgers University, where she studies transportation and safety and public opinion. And she was uh, pitched to me as an expert who could talk about the recent surge in pedestrian and cyclist deaths. That's a big problem we've talked about here on the show several times. Uh, there's some new news out there about how many pedestrians are being hit and killed on uh, the roadways uh, by in, inattentive drivers and it's just a really big problem right now, and uh, the, also in the pitch was uh, Dr. Ralph would be able to talk about how local news outlets, like mine, uh, cover traffic collisions and how this affects perceptions of blame and responsibility among readers, listeners, and viewers. Well, that, that part really <laughs> uh, perked up my ears uh, when I read li that line, so uh, of course I had to have Dr. Ralph on the show today so we could talk about all those different things. Uh, anyway, I, I they, they were offering 15-minute segments, and I begged for two segments with Dr. Ralph, and they graciously gave them to me. So we'll hook up here with Dr. Ralph in just a few minutes, uh, but I think it'll be really great, and I, I'll appreciate uh, uh, spending that time with her. But first, here is something interesting to start off the program. Do you remember a few episodes back? It was just episode number 242, and right now it's 247, so five episodes back. Uh, I had this really good conversation with the CEO of Avello Airlines, Andrew Levy. Uh, it was about a month or so ago. And in that conversation with him, we talked about all kinds of airline stuff. And we also talked about expansion of his little ultra low cost airline, especially how it relates to the airport in northern Colorado, which isn't too far from me up uh, north of Denver International Airport, and uh, so it would be of interest, so I asked him about that. It would be interest to the people who uh, are locals who listen to this program, as well as the, uh, I was doing a story, news story, uh, on that as well uh, for uh, Denver 7 News. Well, anyway, so I asked him about expansion, and uh, the, he told me uh, <laughs> that they were looking to expand. Well, the other day, I received this press release from the Northern Colorado Airport. The headline is this. Avello Airlines notifies Northern Colorado Regional Airport about upcoming service suspension. Being stunned, since, as I said just about a month ago, Mr. Levy told me that they were looking to expand at the Northern Colorado Airport and in other parts of Colorado, I read on. Dateline Loveland, Colorado. The Northern Colorado Regional Airport was notified today that Avello Airlines will suspend commercial flights to from Las Vegas on Thursday, June 16th, and to from Burbank, California on Friday, June 24th. Avello has noted that this suspension comes as fuel and supply costs continue to rise. Local customers with flights booked past these dates can obtain refunds directly from Avello Airlines. Quote, 
While we recognize that airlines must make difficult choices, this news is disappointing to us, and we know that it's also disappointing to those who choose to fly FNL, uh, which is the uh, letters for every every airport has a three-letter call sign, if you will, and that's uh, the Northern Colorado Regional Airport, FNL. Uh, anyway, flights from FNL to Burbank and Las Vegas continue to be popular, proving that local passengers desire commercial air service from our locations at FNL Airport Director Jason Lycan. We recognize that northern Colorado travelers are looking for convenience and value and want the public to know that we will continue to seek this from other potential service providers. It is unfortunate that rising fuel costs and a tight economy have impacted Avello and other airlines across the U.S., making it harder for them to be competitive and provide the same level of service to passengers. Now, this release continued to talk about how the airport, the Fort Collins, northern Colorado regional airport up there, and how that airport is looking at their own expansion, improving their facilities, getting a larger terminal, bringing in more uh, aircraft uh, players in there, uh, companies to uh, fly, other airlines. Uh, I didn't want to think that Mr. Levy was misleading me when we were talking just a month ago or wasn't answering my questions truthfully. I, I want to believe that it was just after I hung up the phone with him that he received a latest business update and forecasts that the costs for his airline were rising to the point where they just couldn't keep operating certain routes, including the one up in northern Colorado. That's what I want to believe, that these smaller airlines can't handle the price fluctuations like the larger airlines can, and that's why they're going to pull out, even though he told me they were looking at expansion. Um, but look, it, it happens, I guess. I mean, look, Delta is reducing their flight numbers this summer. Other airlines are also making similar cuts. They see the signs all over the airport walls of an economic slowdown driven by the astronomical fuel costs and overall inflation. Jet A fuel is about like diesel fuel and about the same overall price. So when you see your gasoline at $4 a gallon and diesel fuel at 5 or 550, well you're going to see Jet A fuel in around that same diesel fuel price. And so Th that's one of the reasons they're just getting killed right now. And and even though airlines, they do buy in bulk, huge bulk quantities at certain prices, well, those uh, gallons and gallons that they've been burning at the lower prices are uh, coming to an end. And they are starting to look at buying fuel at the much higher prices, and it's wiping them out. And it's not good. I was just telling my wife this the other day. Um, when we went to the grocery store, I, the, see, look, a bag of kitty litter because we have traffic cat, of course, it, it's two, it was $2 more. And, and the meat is like $3 more. And the bread is 75 cents more. And by the time you buy 20 or 30 things, you're spending 30 or 40 more dollars than you did just last year. And, and that 30 or $40 was enough for us to go eat out at our favorite Mexican restaurant. Now that I don't have that $40, we're not going out to eat at that restaurant, especially since the $40 that used to feed us at that Mexican restaurant now costs $70 because their costs have gone up. And I don't have the $70 to now pay for the increased food cost at the restaurant. So I would have to, you know, not go to the grocery store twice to go <laughs> eat at our favorite Mexican restaurant. And, and all of that is, is not only hurting, you know, me and my neighbors and, and my coworkers and everybody that's listening to this program economically uh, the same, 
It's hurting the travel industry in general as well. And it's so sad because there are so many people out there that are ready to go and have been ready to go for the last couple of years because they've been locked down and they and they just now feel comfortable going. And, and maybe some of them have saved their, their money and this is going to be a big trip and we're going to see uh, still people traveling uh, with trips happening and, and uh, that sort of thing. But I'm telling you, it this could be the last hurrah for this kind of travel and we will see it contract dramatically in the fall and most likely in the winter, even over the holidays, you could see a real contraction if the prices stay the way they are. Because they're just, it's just so expensive to go. I'm telling you, we're going to spend $5,000 on a baton trip to South Bend later on this summer. Five, it's a, a tri- That's probably double the price that had, had been in uh, our previous baton trips. Um, but we're going to the National Baton Twirling Championship for NBTA in South Bend in July. And, uh, yeah, it's killing us. I, it's just it, it's amazing how, how expensive everything is between the hotel and the airplane and the car rental and all of that. So we haven't even figured out food yet. Anyway, I wouldn't be surprised if I hear more cuts in uh, some of the ultra low-cost area carriers like Avello um, as they're struggling to keep their, their planes in the sky. I, I guess... Only time will tell how uh, challenging this will be for all of us and the airline industry. Um, but I'll put that link to the Avello in- interview uh, with Andrew Levy in the description of the show if you want to go back a few episodes and listen to it again. Uh, and apparently somebody here in Denver is very upset about people not parking their scooters in the right spot and just leaving them in the middle of the sidewalk. Th- this person is so torqued off. They have become a scooter vigilante and now have started covering those QR codes on the scooters. The where That's how you scan the scooter so you could scan it with your app and that's how you turn the scooter on and you use it. Um, so they're taking a, a sticker and they're putting it right over that QR code and, and, and it has an explanation on it of why they're doing it. Well, this is what the sticker says. Per city code, all vehicles must be parked in a manner that does not impede pedestrian clear paths or access in the right-of-way, sidewalk area, or street, or block the boarding or departure of transit users. This scooter was incorrectly parked, resulting in the QR code being obscured. Contact Lyft or Lime if you wish to use this vehicle. We are sorry for your inconvenience, but unfortunately some people suck and are not considerate of how other people use the sidewalk. Well, I, I could, uh, by the way, I, I did have to fix some grammatical errors in that message because uh, I, I don't want to make that part of the story. But, but also, I, I want to go back to, to this, this uh, sentence. Uh, we are sorry for your inconvenience, but unfortunately, some people suck and, and are not considerate of how uh, people use the sidewalk. He should be sorry for the inconvenience of the future rider because, yeah, he also sucks and, and isn't considerate of how people want to use that scooter again. Because really, I, what I can't understand here is why it was a better idea in this person's mind that they decided they were just so mad at this situation, they would craft out a message. They would type it out, probably on their home computer, uh, buy a pack of sticker paper, make sure the image fits in the little box where the sticker paper is, print these things up, carry them around while they're walking around downtown Denver, waiting for the perfect opportunity to vandalize a scooter 
rather than taking the 10 seconds it might take to pick the scooter up and move it out of the way. Really, they're not that hard to move. And isn't it much nicer and less confrontational to deal with a problem by moving it a little bit than disabling the scooter altogether? I mean, presumably, if the scooter was laying in the sidewalk, sideways down, maybe they had to bend over and they just put the sticker on there and left it. Don't Maybe they had to upright it. They're already halfway there. They can then just roll it out of the way. They don't have to put the sticker on it. Because really, disabling the scooter isn't a way to solve the problem by somebody who's a bad parker. It's not the scooter company's fault that the scooter was left in the wrong spot or on the ground or blocking your way. It was the user of that scooter. So disabling the scooter hurts the company and not the previous scooter rider and bad parker. Maybe this person just hates scooters in general and and wants them to go away. That's not going to happen. It only takes a couple dozen rentals uh, for Lime or Lyft to pay for one of those scooters. So the sticker damage probably isn't that big of a deal for them. My, I guess, uh, is that they are pretty easy to, I don't know how, if they can just take that, uh, little lid off where the Q- QR code is, or they can just take another QR code and just stick it right on top of the previous stickers. But seriously, I guess, I guess my point is here, how about some kindness rather than some meanness? Can't we all just get along? Right. Uh, Speaking of meanness on the roads, we've talked several times here on the show about the alarming number of pedestrians and bicyclists that are being killed in many U.S. cities. It's a major problem, and there are some people working on this issue. To talk more about this problem and, and possible solutions is Dr. Kelsey Ralph, Associate Professor of Planning and Public Policy and Transportation at Rutgers University, where she studies transportation safety and public opinion. She joins me now. Dr. Ralph, thanks so much for being here on the world-famous Driving a Crazy podcast. <laughs> thanks for having me, Jason. So before we get into the problem of pedestrian and cyclist deaths on the road, how did you get interested in transportation? Oh, such a good question. So originally, I was really interested in climate change. I'm from Anchorage, Alaska, and I could see glaciers in my own backyard, not literally, but figuratively, um, melting. And I knew that transportation was uh, one of the largest sources of greenhouse gas emissions in the world. And um, I just knew that that was something I wanted to get involved in. Coincidentally, I'm also really into riding a bicycle. And I think there's no better joy in the world. Don't worry, I also own a car. Um, but it just sort of was a, a combination of all of my my interests in one profession. At UCLA, you studied the travel behavior of special populations is what it was called. So what exactly is a special population? Yeah, it's a funny term. So at the time when I was doing my PhD, lots of young people appeared to be driving less than they ever had before. And a lot of urbanists were really excited, right? This is a success story. Young people are giving up their cars, they're embracing public transit, moving back to the cities. And that just didn't really square with uh, my experience and the experience of my family members. It struck me that Um, A lot of folks wanted to drive and were simply unable to afford it. So that's one special population, young people. But also I study the travel patterns of women, um, the LGBTQ community, um, low-income folks. So just a lot of different specific groups. 
Yeah, because I was reading part of your uh, doctoral dissertation project as you evaluated, as you said, some of the causes and consequences of decline in driving among young adults. And I I know your research was well before ride sharing. and, And so taking that out of the mix, do you think there were just fewer people driving in a major metropolitan area where the cost, as you said, was maybe just too prohibitive to owning a vehicle or getting around or, or in, you know, in those in those major transit areas, you have it, I guess, in you know Los Angeles, San Francisco and the major cities, you have transit available. But if you're in the suburbs or in your rural areas, you're more spread out and you don't have that ability to not really own a vehicle. Yeah, it's. It's what made this trend so troubling is that it wasn't concentrated in the cities like San Francisco. The decline in driving was really happening throughout the suburbs and even in our lowest density locations. And so what I found is that it wasn't just that people were giving up driving. They were giving up traveling quite a bit. We have to remember this was at the time of the the recession, the Great Recession. So a lot of folks were just simply staying home, not participating in a lot of economic activities, not going out to meet with friends. And so this was actually like a big warning call, right? This is not a celebration. Something's gone very wrong indeed. Because a vehicle really... It's a way to provide freedom to people where they can go to where they want to go, when they want to go, anywhere around uh, their city, their state, their country. Yeah, I want to be really clear that that's true here. Um, It is, in fact, not just a, a symbol of freedom, but sort of the only entry ticket available to access opportunities. It doesn't have to be true, and it's not true everywhere else. Um There are many places where the same level of freedom that we're looking for here is available via public transit and walking and biking. It's just not the case in most U.S. cities. My guest is Dr. Kelsey Ralph. She's the Associate Professor of Planning and Public Policy at Rutgers University. We're talking about how many pedestrians, bicyclists are being killed on the roadways. What do you think is at the root of this problem where pedestrians are being injured and killed? Do you think it's a problem that stems from drivers that are maybe driving distracted, recklessly? Uh, Since the pandemic started, I've noticed people are driving faster now, even more distracted now. Do you think that could be some of the surge in, in this, or are there some other factors involved? I think you're absolutely right that something has happened in the past year that has sort of broken our social contract. Um, The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration just released the data for crashes this year. They're 13% higher than they were last year. And so that just sort of confirms anecdotally, I guess, what you're seeing. Um, I think that's part of it. Uh, I also think that we need to remember that folks are moving to less safe regions of the country. The Sun Belt is the fastest growing region of the country. It's also the most dangerous for people um, to travel in. Um, And that's because the the roadways there were designed once the automobile was already king. And so those streets prioritize high speed, they prioritize high flow, and they sort of put safety third. When you're looking at these areas like the Sun Belt, you're also talking about people who are typically older drivers. Do you think that might have any kind of role in what's going on? Because maybe their cognitive awareness of what's going on around them, they didn't maybe grow up driving with folks that are on bikes and and walking around as much. And maybe that's playing a little bit of a role in those specific areas. It's possible. I, I don't know the evidence offhand, but I suspect that it's also up amongst young drivers and middle-aged drivers. Um, these are just places where an accident is bound to happen. 
Do the pedestrians and bike riders, in your view, have any responsibility here when they're in conflict with cars? Uh, are they ever at fault? Oh, such a good question. So I think sometimes my work gets misinterpreted as suggesting that pedestrians are never at fault, that a, a cyclist could never do anything wrong. And, and of course, that's not true. Um, I do question our emphasis on this phrase, shared responsibility. You hear it trotted out all the time in these discussions, shared responsibility for you know, drivers and cyclists and pedestrians. And that's true to some extent, but the drivers are at the wheel of a multi-ton vehicle that's capable of killing. And if a pedestrian makes a, a mistake, it's their life on the line, or more likely their ankle or their, their pride, right, if they run into something. But if a driver makes a mistake, it's other people's lives. And that's, you know, thanks to decades of crash safety improvements to cars. If a driver crashes, they're likely going to make it. It's the people outside the car that sort of shoulder the burden. So in some of these instances, do you think, at least for me, if I was a bike rider, I, I do ride my bike, but I wouldn't ride my bike on the road because I am, maybe because of what I do, hyper aware of the inability for people who are driving these days to pay attention to what they're doing. Just yesterday, I was following somebody after picking up my daughter from school and this couple of kids that are from the high school driving home and weaving across the right lane because they are completely distracted. And if I was, it, it was in that bike area. So if I'm a bike rider and, and, and I don't know that this person's coming up behind me and, and she's totally distracted, uh, it may be uh, on my end, at least for me personally, it's not worth it for me to go ride a bike in those situations. Yeah. So that's so heartbreaking. It, it's, it reveals the, the sort of role of privilege, right? In that if we can choose to ride a bike or where we could ride a bike, of course, I'd only choose to ride for fun on locations that are completely separated from traffic. But for a lot of Americans, a bike or walking is the only option. And my goal is to make sure that our roadways are safe for all users, even those who can't make a choice. My guest is Dr. Kelsey Ralph. She's the Associate Professor of Planning and Public Policy at Rutgers University. Do you think there are some psychological factors here involved since all the news of, you know, since 2020 and 2021 and now even in the last couple of days? I mean, really, the news is negative. It is it's weighing down on a lot of people's psychosis. And, and do you think that that has anything to do with how people are driving and maybe driving without the attention that they, they really need to? Jason, that's such a good question. I think uh, a lot of postdocs and PhD students across the country should be working to answer those questions. <laughs> I can speculate. Um, I think that there are sort of two things going on. Less regard for others, right? We are in our own box. We're seceded from society when we're inside that cocoon and sort of everyone else be damned. I don't know if you can say that on your show. Yes. Um, <laughs> but the other thing is that these phones this is an addiction machine, yeah, right? It is totally. not. Um, it is not a surprise that people are checking their phone constantly. I'm an expert in this, and I hear the ding, and I think I should look. Yeah. I really should. So we need to get real about um, sort of self control is not going to be sufficient to overcome the distractions within a vehicle. I was talking to somebody on a. There's we have another show on one of our other TV stations, 
And she had me on there to talk for a half an hour about road rage. And we were talking about road rage and how just people now are more amped up and anything can set them off. And it almost seems like they're a firecracker behind the wheel and any little thing can make them do something irrational. And unfortunately, if you have, like we've been talking about, people on a bike who can't protect themselves or somebody who's trying to walk across the street can't protect themselves, uh, you, you have that bad mix right in, in, together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, you know, just maybe required meditation as part of your driver training. <laughs> right. You talked a little bit about the Sunbelt uh, being a problem. Are, are there other areas of the country uh, that uh, this is going to be a problem, maybe more in highly densely packed areas like, let's say, a Manhattan or Chicago than it is in a oh, more open city? Uh, like Nashville is a little bit more open. I guess the downtown area is still pretty crowded, but you know what I mean? You know, somewhere where it's real densely packed compared to a little bit more wide open. So it's actually the opposite of your intuition right there. The more densely packed the people are, the more things that are happening on the street, the safer those streets are for pedestrians. The moment we get to places that are designed exclusively for the car, that's where we run into problems. I think what you're alluding to are having bulb outs, things like that. And I, I always talk about if you want, and we have a problem in, in my uh, little town here south of Denver with people speeding on the major road, uh, they, they've asked me about this. And I said, look, if you make it uncomfortable for them, if they feel squeezed in on a road, you're naturally going to slow down. So things like that can help slow people down and, and then help save lives. Just being aware that there are other people out there, right? If you see a cyclist, then you might see another one. Whereas if you never see a cyclist, it comes as quite a surprise. Uh, I'm working. I, I'm actually going to be speaking next week uh, and uh, at, to the mayor of Carmel, Indiana, as he has. And I don't know if you've heard this, but he has a project where he's put in 140 roundabouts in his town there in Indiana. And he says this is the major reason they're actually seeing a lower number of fatalities and uh, deaths uh, and, and, and injuries across his city. What, what do you think about roundabouts? Um, so there are two things to keep in mind. One is that they do actually increase crashes. And so if you look at just at the crash statistics, you might think, oh, my gosh, we've made a grave error. But they um, reduce serious crashes by a long shot. Um, incidentally, they also improve flow. So if that's something you care about, we are able to get more people through the intersection in a way that's much safer for everyone. So I'm team roundabout. I am as well, because not only that, but it also saves money, saves gas, it saves electricity for those yeah. towns and maintenance bills. And you don't have a maintenance crew in there trying to fix a traffic signal while um, in conflict with other vehicles. So uh, I know I, I agree. Roundabouts are great. We should make T-shirts. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I'm not uh, the greatest um, graphic designer, uh, but, I, <laughs> but, but, but I am an idea person there, uh, doctor. So, okay. Uh, what can cities do you think specifically do to try to make streets safer for all the users? Is, is there one thing? Is there a bunch of things? Is, is this going to be too expensive for the cities to uh, get mm -hmm. a hold of? Great question. So I, I think the key thing to do is first to choose the appropriate speed limit to protect lives. Um, often our speeds on arterial streets are 45, uh, 45 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour. And we know for a fact that if you get hit by a car at those speeds, your chance of death is rather high. Um, 
Whereas you're far more likely to survive a crash at say 20 miles per hour or even 30. Um, so but that only works with enforcement, with good enforcement. That's step number two, Jason. <laughs> okay. um, no, no. I, so you're absolutely right. Um, it does lower speeds a little bit, but not enough. Uh, we also need to add enforcement. And the police can't be everywhere at once, right? They have other things to be working on. So I'm actually a really big fan of automated enforcement. It has to be done right. There's been a lot of places where it hasn't been done well, and we can talk about those issues. Um, but if it's done well, um, we see a real drop in speeds. We see very few repeat offenders, right? Most people get a ticket once and then realize that they need to drive appropriately there. And then the key part of this plan is to use that money to invest in better infrastructure, adding things like sidewalks, putting in crosswalks, and making sure that those streets are self-enforcing. That's the things like bulb bugs that you were mentioning earlier. We can't rely on the limit. We can't rely on the camera. Let's make the street itself enforcing. And so do you think maybe we need to have an update on the manual uniform traffic control devices to allow for more uh, creative sidewalks or uh, not sidewalks, but uh, crosswalks where, because right now, it, it, at least in the manual, it's just little white stripes. But some towns have changed that and, and done other more creative ways i know in places in europe where they don't have to follow the mt uh, the mutcd is that they they make it look almost 3d where it looks like yeah. the road is raised but <laughs> it's not and, and so naturally people would slow down is it maybe time to uh, update that um so very few people i speak with know about the mutcd <laughs> so i'm impressed good on your readers or Thank your listeners you. um yes I, there are so many changes required for the mutcd part of it uh is making sure that we can do sort of more creative crosswalks like you've mentioned, but even more fundamentally, it's empowering local cities to make choices about where they need infrastructure. And right now, I'm sure you've heard of warrants. There are guidelines about where and when you can put in safety infrastructure. And for example, the, you need 93 people crossing every hour to be able to put in a signalized crosswalk. And if you don't have the 93 people, push, or if you don't have the crosswalk, how are you going to get 93 people crossing every hour? Um, so just moving away from this use of warrants and giving cities more more flexibility would be great. Going back to that uh, question that we were talking about, about the speed enforcement and how you mentioned automated enforcement has to be done well. So how is it done well? Because right now, if it's done around here, it's usually in a photo radar van. And then those tickets don't have any legs unless you personally served that ticket. If it's just showing up in the mail, you, you have the option not to not to pay it. Right. And so in a way, this is a result of missteps in the 90s when automated cameras were first coming out. We have state after state implementing them, um, making contracts with uh, private uh, camera companies who you know made more money the more tickets they they issued. And we got into a lot of trouble in the courts basically saying, this isn't sufficient evidence. Um, you're you're sort of juicing the numbers by poorly calibrating the cameras, changing the yellow timing. Um, all of those things are absolutely inappropriate. So I think we need to sort of come clean and say, in the past, we didn't do great. We should run these um, as a government agency, not with for-profit uh, camera firms. And we should make sure that we put the cameras in high high crash locations. It can't just be in places where we're, we know we're gonna get a lot of tickets. The goal here should be to actually make the cameras redundant within a couple of years. But you still have that issue of 
you have the right to face your accuser. And yeah. in this country, you have to be served your because really, a, a, when you get a ticket from an officer, it's a it's a summons to court. And so it has the court date and all that on there. What you're doing when you're paying the ticket is pleading guilty to that uh, offense. And then for a lower, for usually instead of speeding, it's a, uh, you know, something's wrong with your vehicle and then you get lower points. So you still have that as part of the Constitution where you're just getting a ticket uh, in the mail from a camera that's not really facing your accuser. Yeah, it's a good question. Good question, and I am actually not sure. So there are several cities now who have started doing cameras again. New York City among them, to great success. I'm not sure how they're dealing with this issue. It's something I'll have to check out. My guest is Dr. Kelsey Ralph. She's the associate professor of planning and public policy at Rutgers University. We've been talking about how many pedestrians and bicyclists are being killed on our roadways. Uh, as part of uh, this uh, pitch to me that was <laughs> sent to me, it, it, it says that you think that, uh, or at least you've said, that local news and traffic reporters like myself who, who cover traffic collisions uh, on a daily basis can affect perceptions of blame and responsibility. Explain how. Yeah, so first, I want to be really clear. Most journalists are incredibly overworked, right? Um, especially these newspaper reporters at small local papers. Staff has been cut, and they're under great pressure to produce stories really quickly. And so what that means is that we often reproduce police press releases and sort of almost word for word or drawing very heavily from them. The problem is that those police press releases often very subtly shift um, focus onto the victim. They blame the victim. And they do this in a couple of ways. One is at the sentence level. So we know for a fact that the most common way to describe a crash in the media is to say a pedestrian was hit. And it doesn't seem very problematic, but that makes the pedestrian the focus of the sentence, or as I like to say, sometimes the star of the show. It seems really subtle, but that focus on the pedestrian shifts blame towards them. And we know that from two things. One, um, just decades of linguistic work shows that the focus gets more blame. And also I ran an experiment and I showed readers different versions of an identical crash where we shifted a couple of word choices um, to move away from that. So instead of writing a pedestrian was hit, I encouraged journalists to write a driver hit a pedestrian. And if necessary, a driver hit a pedestrian with their car or with their Chevy Tahoe or whatever it is. Um, the other thing is that we tend to include certain facts and not other facts. So we tend to include things like what the pedestrian was wearing or whether they were in the crosswalk or not, but we don't ever include or very rarely include things like um, the speed of the roadway, the, the presence or absence of sidewalks. Often they're not even available, but it's not mentioned or um, the availability of lighting. And so I'm okay with preventing or presenting as many facts as possible as long as it comes with sort of facts about the system as well. But, you know, it, it, in reading a newspaper story, they are, as you said, very short. Even here in Denver, there are no more transportation reporters. When I started doing this forever ago, every news, well, we also had a lot more newspapers. Uh, and yeah. so each one had their own transportation person. And that is, that's totally gone now. And I, and I understand your point about saying that a driver hit a person because I try to do that as much as possible because I, I understand your point there. I also say crash or wreck instead of accident because you don't know yeah. intent, right? Uh, but if you're saying if it was in a crosswalk, well, yeah, I think that matters because we have people who are outside of a crosswalk. And if they do get hit by somebody who is not expecting somebody to be outside of that crosswalk, well, you know, let's say safer area, 
yeah. then then I think that does matter to the to the story. So and to be very clear, I, I agree. It shouldn't be um, shifting blame towards the driver. I want us to sort of broaden our aperture and think about what are the conditions that made this person choose to cross where they did. And often, not always, but often, it's because there is a lack of infrastructure. I'd encourage you when you see someone who is jaywalking in one of these stories to calculate how far it would take for them to walk to the nearest crosswalk, cross safely, and walk back to the point that they made across the street. You're saying this exactly, and I and, and there's a story in my head from maybe a year or two ago where there's a bus stop and then there's a on one side of the road and then there's a Burger King on the other side of the road. And it's maybe a hundred yards down to the crosswalk and then across the street and then back up another hundred yards. And this person that ran from the bus stop over to the McDonald or the uh, Burger King was hit in the road. And so they, could have easily it, it's somebody who was able to walk and and presumably uh wasn't in a wheelchair wasn't disabled anything like that uh but seemed able to walk down to the where there is a button and and could stop traffic and then get across the road safely and then back up to the burger king but chose to take that quicker route and unfortunately mm-hmm. um was you know hit by a car yeah i mean in a way this is circling back to your question earlier I don't think that pedestrians are always free of blame, right? I think um, there are certainly cases where bad choices were made. I don't think that the punishment should be death, right? I think that we know people are going to make mistakes. Let's make sure that we lower speed limits and, uh, you know, keep a few more people alive. Uh, By the way, uh, I I was going through some of my research, and in one of your online lectures, it was titled Transportation 101, Traffic Flow, and it was dated (laughs) back in January of 2020. And you talked about how density of traffic related to lower speeds of vehicles. In my experience, that's not exactly correct. Because in a, in a computer-driven world, let's say everybody's driving a, a Tesla that actually works well. Um, and so in a computer-driven world, uh, you could actually, in theory, have all vehicles about a foot apart going at 200 miles an hour down the same interstate. You could have them all going. It, it really is... What I like to term is called breaking the gap, where you (laughs) enter cars or or more vehicles from a a ramp. So there's a space, natural space between vehicles. Once you enter one, there has to be a natural space then added, and then that has the chain reaction back. It's the same thing if somebody's changing lanes. So it's not Mm -hmm. necessarily just having more cars in the flow. Adding more cars in the flow, I think, is what you were probably getting at when you were talking, except in your, in your explanation, it was just, there's more cars. That means that traffic's going to naturally slow down and that's the way it is. Yeah. So, I mean, sure. If, if they're, (laughs) if they're perfect Tesla drivers who are able to maintain a foot of separation, you're, you're quite right. We would be able to get more, more cars through. It's not just density. It's their ability to drive next to each other. But we're we're years out from that, maybe decades. And and we're all human. And I think that's the problem is that when you're driving down the highway, and I'm sure you do this when you're driving, if you're blinded by the sun, naturally you're going to slow down. That in turn will slow down the drivers behind you and therefore slow down the traffic, even though the volume might not have changed. Yeah. In fact, your story sort of reminds me of this funny uh, statistic we saw at UCLA, where we should, saw a graph of what the relationship between density and flow should be for a normal street. 
And then we saw it for Los Angeles drivers and their capacity to drive next to each other was off the charts. Yeah. They're, they're getting a lot more people through because their tolerance for that very different than the tolerance in say Seattle, for example. Oh, exactly. And if I was going to tell you, all right, we're going to go to this open parking lot that, mm-hmm. it, you know, pretty, let, let, let's say even on a, in a runway, okay. Of a, a airplane runway where there aren't stripes or lines or anything, but we, we could drive it at 60 miles an hour. Let's say you and I in separate cars, I want to drive two feet next to you. You're going to go, you're crazy. What are you talking about? But we do that all the time on every interstate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's more than it's more than two feet because interstate lanes are 12 feet wide on average. There's two of them. I don't know about your car. My car is rather tiny. So I got lots of wiggle room. <laughs> ah, OK. I, I have a Chevy Volt. So I'm uh, no. So it's not too big. You do too. Yeah. yeah. You have a Chevy Volt? No, no, no. Oh, okay. I just, you have a, a small, small car. car too. Oh, okay, gotcha. But then again, if you think about it, a bus also fits in that same lane, and then you have two people sitting next to next to you, right? And then an aisle, and then two more people, and that still fits in the same lane as me and you in our little cars. I don't understand how my sister is a bus driver, and she is a hero. All of those bus drivers are heroes. It's pretty amazing. My guest is Dr. Kelsey Ralph. She's Associate Professor of Planning and Public Policy at Rutgers University. When you're speaking to your students, what are some of the major questions that they have uh, regarding how all of this transportation stuff works? Because when, when they're coming at it from you know a younger view, they, they don't have the experience driving like you and I do from, from years of doing it. Yeah, I think the the biggest thing that they come to me with is how do we convince people that our vision of the world is the right vision of the world? Students who come to planning school want a certain kind of city, right? They want a world in which people are walking, biking, and, and riding transit everywhere. And a lot of my research is focused on the huge gap between what students want and what the public wants. And Um, that's often really frustrating for them as students, but also as early career professionals. And I try to make sure that they understand why the public thinks the way they do, why the public sees cars as so essential, and then to think about strategies for communicating the ways in which the world might be, you know, 10% better um, if we could make a couple of changes. But aren't there differences between, as we went earlier, talk about maybe they're planning differently for an urban area where in some places like London, they're they're trying to eliminate a lot of the vehicles coming in there unless you have to pay a, a, a fee for it um, right. compared to a suburban area. I could see a day where there are very few cars in densely packed suburban areas and you have only either rideshare in there, either public transportation. I've always thought that gondolas are a great idea, especially out here in <laughs> yeah. Colorado. Uh, you know, just you know, cruising across the city up high, looking down below and waving. Um, but and then you have the outer ring where people would drive into a certain area and then have to use the public transportation or whatever else to get inside the you know urban ring, if you will. Yeah, and there's certainly room for lots of different preferences, and of course, geographic sorting to the places we want to go. My vision, I'm sort of imagining, um, my sister has a a toddler, and I'm imagining when her kid is 16, 17 in the suburbs, my hope for him is that he's able to get to where he wants to go safely and conveniently without a car, that that's a viable option, even in the suburbs. And I think there's a balance to be had between like cars everywhere um, but cars make us unhappy, Jason. They make us stressed. You're talking about they make <laughs> Not us necessarily. Sad. They make us poor, right? Like there are all these things where, yes, the way we've designed our cities, they are the best way to get around now. 
but they're not particularly great. No one's sitting in their car is like, this feels awesome. I, I do. I mean, it's a really good time for me to relax, listen to the radio, <sighs> listen to a podcast, you know, do something like that and actually unwind and not and not have all the noise that's otherwise around me. But then again, I'm also driving into work at three o'clock in the morning. There we go. We're, <laughs> so two things. We are cut from very different cloths. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people find driving really stressful and, and rage inducing. And mis- mostly it's because we're driving at different times. Maybe that, that could that could be it. I'm living at a different time. But I was talking on, you know, going back to the whole road rage thing from earlier when I was on that show earlier today, I was basically saying that, look, everybody's going to handle road rage differently, but you just can't. You just got to let it go because the person you're angry at doesn't know that you're angry at them. And so you're only hurting yourself. Oh, so true. So true. <laughs> right. I feel like there's a lesson there about a lot of things, not just driving. Yeah, probably <laughs> so. Well, I know our uh, time is up here and uh, you have another interview to do. Dr. Kelsey Ralph, thanks so much for being here. Uh, Associate Professor of Planning and Public Policy at Rutgers University. If somebody wanted to contact you for more info, uh, what's the best way to do it? Uh, my email was probably the best way. Um, Kelsey.Ralph at Rutgers.edu. It's K-E-L-C-I-E. Dot Ralph, R-A-L-P-H, at Rutgers.edu. And you also have a Twitter handle, KM Ralph, oh, yeah. right? There you That's go. That's right. Perfect. Well, thanks again for being here. I appreciate your time. Team team gondola t-shirts yes. and See? some roundabout t-shirts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Gondolas everywhere. It'd be perfect. I don't know about New Jersey, but here in Colorado, they'd be a hit. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much, Jason. This was a lot of fun. By the way, I referred what I referred to in that conversation with Dr. Ralph is the show. Uh, it's a lifestyle type show with Kathy J. It's on our sister station called Local Three, and, and that's where she invited me to be on her show to talk about road rage. It, it was a good conversation because Kathy has a a major major problem with road rage. She has for years. She's been talking about it on her when on a radio show for years and years, and now on her TV show. And she really has a hard time controlling her emotions when she is driving, and and that's where this problem comes from. Uh, and, and she's 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 followed people to confront them, gotten out of her car to confront and nearly fight people that she's had a road rage issue with. I mean, that is certified road rage from Kathy J. I, I tried to calm her down on the show as best I could uh, with some uh, there's with someone like that. It's, it's really difficult to get them to relax on the road and not be so high-strung and so angry all the time because it is a deep-rooted problem of hate of other drivers and how they drive that is fueling her uh, road rage. And, and there are some people like that. I try to tell her that being mad at the other driver does nothing for the other driver, only it's making her drive worse i, I kind of think that got through to her a little bit but i'm i'm sure she's right back to where she was uh, a few days ago in, in her emotional state now so uh, if you would like to see that interview with me and kathy J, I, I put the link in in that uh, of that show it's kathy J has a youtube channel and uh, you can watch uh, that episode uh, from that YouTube channel, so I put that in the description of the show if you want to uh, to see it. Okay, anyway, thanks again for uh, being here. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.